Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. Before we get to the Sunday message, we want to share a need that we have as a community. We had to burn through our savings during the COVID pandemic, and we would like to replenish that in order to stay on mission and continue doing ministry as Grace and Peace Church. If you find any value from what we're doing as a podcast or as a church community, we'd invite you to check out the GoFundMe. There's a link in the description in the show notes, as well as on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, or on our website at graceandpeacechurch.org. And uh, you can read more on that GoFundMe page about what we're doing and support what we're doing. Grace and peace to you as you participate and prayerfully support what's happening and what God is doing through this community and keeping it alive. Grace and peace to you. Good morning. How's everybody doing? (laughs) Nice. Nice to see you all. As Nate said, today is a fourth Sunday. That does mean a change of pace. We've got the kids in with us, which I'm always happy about. There's no band. And as he said, apart from that, we're going to set aside this opening time as well for meditative worship. So if you've been with us for a bit, uh, you're familiar with the role of Lectio Divina in our faith practice. Nate mentioned it. We have small groups doing it, but we've been doing it here as well. Uh, Some time back, we adopted this ancient form of responsive reading and listening as a way to direct our attention to what God is saying to us through his word. So to move us to that end, I want to continue this morning uh, first by showing an image from Psalm Prayers, and it's surrounded by a sentiment from Thomas Merton. So for the podcast, uh, we're looking at a woodcut image of Thomas Merton, who was a 20th century Catholic monk. He was a theologian, a writer. Um, He's a balding guy. He's wearing a dark clerical dress. He's holding a pencil, and the inscription around him says, In silence, God ceases to be an object and becomes an experience. So let me say that again. In silence, God ceases to be an object and becomes an experience. So I'm hoping that we can embrace this relative silence this morning. I'm hoping that kind of in the absence of the typical sounds of worship, we can genuinely experience the one who fills the space. So with that in mind, let me offer this prayer from St. Aidan as the words that we're going to meditate on, and they'll be on the screen. Leave me alone with God as much as may be. As the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, make me an island set apart, alone with you, God, holy to you. Then, with the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond, the world that rushes in on me until the waters return and enfold me back to you. I've asked Nate to read it a second time. Leave me alone with God as much as may be. As the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, make me an island set apart, alone with you, God, holy to you. Then, with the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond, the world that rushes in on me, 
until the waters return and enfold me back to you. And now, by way of practice, I'll read it again. Leave me alone with God as much as may be. As the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, make me an island set apart, alone with you, God, holy to you. Then, with the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond, the world that rushes in on me until the waters return and enfold me back to you. Now, I'm not going to ask for a verbal response today since our reading is a prayer toward God. But, as we do, if there's a word or a phrase that stands out to you, let that work on you. Let that influence you, maybe shape your continued conversation through Christ throughout the day. That would be my prayer for you. So now... We'll continue with our focus still on God to a time of communion. The communion table was first converted by Christ at his last Passover meal with his disciples. In the middle of that remembrance time, that time of thanksgiving for God's first great act of salvation, Jesus broke bread. And he declared to his friends, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now hear that, a new covenant. With that phrase, Jesus acknowledged an existing, binding relationship between God and Israel, and at the same time implied that things were changing. Jesus had come to do a new thing. At that last supper, Jesus invited his disciples into a renewed relationship with him, one where he would bear all the cost and simply asked for an accurate representation of him in return. He invited everyone at his table to partake in his life, and then sent them out, filled, to live in righteousness. And that's the same invitation that we can respond to today. This is the bread and drink of a new agreement to enter into Christ-likeness and to participate in the world, in unity with him. So you are all invited. And I'll ask you to come and participate. You can leave your seats if you're so inclined and come and take the bread and take the wine, the juice, and participate newly with Christ. You're welcome to come into the silence. We're going to continue with the subject of covenant now. And first, I'm going to look back to last week, and then we're going to dig into the scripture that's set apart for today. So last week, Nate taught from Exodus 19, and his subject also was a covenant, which we can think of as divine and consequential promise, 
Um, if you were here last week, you might think of as a dude in a barrel, and you'll get that reference if you look back on that. Uh, a snapshot of that reading might be this verse where God said to Israel, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. So if you were here last week or if you're just generally familiar with that passage, you'll know some important points of fact about that conversation from Exodus. So first, God was speaking to all of Israel collectively. The entire nation had been set apart as his own priestly kingdom, a holy nation chosen by God to draw humanity into a renewed relationship with the creator, with the king of kings. And two, Israel was responding as one, a collective group unified in purpose of one mind answering unanimously, yes, Lord, we are your people, the people of your promise. And that ask and answer was vital to covenant. Each party, God and Israel, entered into that agreement voluntarily, wholeheartedly, and with full knowledge of the terms and conditions. And so with that, Israel was God's own, and Yahweh was Israel's God. And that agreement had the potential to broker peace between heaven and earth. Israel was poised to be a city on a hill, reflecting God's light into a dark world and drawing humanity into right relationship with God. And with Israel signed and sealed as a favored nation among all people, redemption was at hand for the whole world. So what went wrong? This is just me speculating. But for the sake of argument today, I'm going to say maybe semantics. Specifically, ambiguity. Look again at the outcome of the covenant. Israel was God's own, and Yahweh was Israel's God. That statement was the crux of a perfect agreement, divinely orchestrated and beautifully intentional. The language forged a relationship that would benefit all of humanity for all time. Unless, unless the contract was ever misread, misinterpreted, or misconstrued. So I'm going to set aside the first half of that statement. I'm going to ask us to agree that when God said that Israel was specially set apart and holy unto himself, it was. I'm just going to let that phrase, Israel was God's own, stand at face value. But could the other bit be problematic? Yahweh was Israel's God. Ideally, this part of the covenant was Israel's affirmation of God's first command, which said this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And ideally, that meant that Israel would worship only one God and honor him alone. That was the spirit of the law. 
And I believe that that was the intention and the true language of the covenant. And to be fair, it's probably the sentiment within which the agreement was reached. That would have been a beautiful and fruitful relationship. An entire nation committed to being shaped by God's commands. That should have meant an end to idolatry. It would have been an end to the subjective interpretation of right and wrong, an end to false teaching. That agreement would have instituted Sabbath rest for everyone. It would have forbidden violence, infidelity, theft, envy. All the people of Israel agreed to live like that to be exemplary and to exude God's law for humanity. But hear me out. What if the contract was reread with a slightly different emphasis? Listen differently. Listen selfishly. Read this again and let it sink in. Yahweh was Israel's God. Now, I mentioned the spirit of the law already, but look at what the letter of the law could say. From a certain point of view, possession or ownership is suggested here. And I'm asking us to consider the implications of that error. Consider for a moment what line of thinking might follow from the mistaken notion that any distinct people group could own God to the exclusion of others and in owning him, perhaps, remake him in their image or change his message. I think that this small ambiguity in the language of the contract between God and humanity might have been exploited. And I think that it might have happened really early in the relationship. I think it's possible that the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus was in part undertaken to course correct that kind of misunderstanding and to reinterpret the terms of relationship for our sake, for the sake of his name, and for the sake of the whole world. And that's the premise of how I read Matthew 10 this week like a treatise against ambiguity and for the sake of absolute clarity. So here's Matthew 10, 24 through 39. Jesus said to the 12 disciples, a disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is not enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. I'm sorry, it is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her, son, her, her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be, the member, will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That's all a little blunt. It's a little violent, I think. Like, I actually don't love some of those words. And Jesus uses this shocking language, and I want to know what brought that on. What was going on? At this point in the gospel, Jesus had spent a bunch of time calling, training, and teaching his disciples. And now, He's sending them out to minister in his name. The apostles had heard Jesus preach. They'd seen him heal. They watched his caretaking. They participated in his compassionate ministry. They were aware that all of those activities upset the religious authorities and the people in power. In this discussion with his disciples, Jesus reiterated all of that. He drew a line under the hard truth of discipleship. He's shown a big, bright light on the hardships ahead. And then he said to his followers, go anyway, eyes wide open, no matter what. Go and do what you have seen me do. In my name, go be massively loving. Now let me repeat this part for emphasis. He was sending them out to minister in his name. In his name. As in representative of the one who sent them. They were his disciples, and he was their rabbi and master. Their words and actions would extend from his person. Their ways and ministry would reflect the very image of the one whose name they bore, and that is Jesus. That was their agreement. Jesus wasn't theirs to own or manipulate, and his message wasn't there to reinterpret, but to deliver. He was theirs in the sense of their teacher, the object of their devotion, the subject of their learning. And they were his in that they willfully followed him and were shaped by his ways. The relationship between Christ and the disciples was specific, and it was hierarchical. The disciples were students, and Jesus was their rabbi. He alone was ultimately responsible for the message and the outcome of the mission, but his students played a practical role. They were invited into his mission with the goal to carry on his work through the generations, through the millennia. Christ forged a path for others to follow, but by undertaking that journey, the disciples would risk bearing the responsibility of his name in their person. There was a risk to them, certainly. Jesus was dealing with that at this point in chapter 10, But I think there's also a risk to Jesus' good name, and he's dealing with that too. Given some mistakes, 
that Israel had made representing God in the past, I think that Jesus was using this teaching moment to hyper-clarify the point of his message and to resurrect and redeem the original covenant. So let's have another look at the concluding sentence we read. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I think that this section is a clear, unambiguous description of how a follower could work out where they stood with respect to the old promise, we are Yahweh's and he is our God, with the caveat that Jesus was God incarnate. To me, it reads like a job posting with minimum qualifications specified and a signing bonus promised. It's clearly framed as you're in or you're out, worthy or not, with me or not. And remember, and this is important, this is spoken to a group of guys already trained for the job, and they're now just facing a moment of truth about their next level of commitment. The work ahead wasn't meant for anyone who weren't true disciples, and it was okay to weed out anyone who wasn't willing to go and be Christ-like. So now if you have phones or Bibles, you might want to pull up Matthew 10, 24 through 39 again, because this presentation of like opposing positions looks like it's part of a literary device that runs through the whole passage. Remember, it's a conversation, a big conversation about clarifying each person's commitment to Christ following. So the repetition of choices kind of makes sense. And that first pairing was this, remember, a disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. So this is the first time we see these two contrasted relationships, student to teacher, slave to master. But these terms are not presented to support status. On the contrary, they point to equality in the life of God. Jesus is saying that since the latter person, meaning himself as a teacher and master, would suffer for truth's sake, so would the former, meaning anyone who would act in his name. So using the language of the time, all disciples are fairly warned concerning the path laid out to them by these pairings. But they're also assured that no matter how difficult the way of Christ proved to be, his truth would be made known in their mission. And then next we read this other series of contrasts. Covered and uncovered, secrets made known, whispers proclaimed. And here the disciples are assured again and again that nothing in this world would dampen or mute the good news of God in Christ. And remember the mission was this. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. If these 12 would undertake the task, healing would follow and the truth of God in Christ would be made known. Now the next pair is this, acknowledge or deny. Signing on to discipleship came with a promise of troubles, 
because of the name of Christ. But it also came with an incredible promise, which would be advocacy in the name and the person of Christ who would speak for his people at the end of days. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Christ promised to stand for the people who would make his truth known. And then there's this. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Peace and sword. Here, the disciples are dramatically reminded that the name they bore and the message they carried were divisive. Jesus would always be an either-or proposition, and his lordship would be declared, personally or not, by everyone. But this is interesting. That fact elevated individuals, and it valued each person's voice. According to the structure and the politics of that ancient land, each patriarch would answer for their household in every other way. But in this eternal matter, individual decisions would be respected by God. Man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And where decisions for or against God, for or against the mission of Christ would separate family members, break familial bonds, new alliances would be formed from former enemies. And in that way, a new household would be built. A new household that would become the body of Christ, his church. And his church would ultimately be filled by his spirit to be his means and his method for relaying the truth to the world. And that one church, that universal and diverse body would be the remnant of the new covenant, declaring unambiguously through the ages, we are God's people and Jesus is our God. With we, meaning a broad-reaching collective of humans invited by God into relationship with him through Christ, and our God, meaning the subject and object of our devotion to such an extent that all disciples would reflect his divine image to a world that needs to know his healing and to see his great love. So that's how I read Matthew 10. I think it's about exposing the terms and conditions of Christ's covenant so that there is no fine print when it comes to being a disciple. If the first disciples had misread the promise of God or misconstrued the meaning of the covenant relationship that they were entering into, they would not have done justice to Jesus' mission. In the same way, if we were to understate the gravity of discipleship, we would misrepresent commitment to Christ following. We still have to tell the truth. Or if we were to soften the language of followership, we might obscure Christ's insistence that his disciples take up his cross by closely and accurately following in his footsteps. And to be clear, that entails a pretty limited scope of tasks like healing, proclaiming, serving, 
freeing, feeding, and loving people really well. As I read it, today's passage spelled out the terms of discipleship to the first Christ followers. I think Jesus was plain spoken. He was frank. I don't think he was afraid to weed out the uncommitted. But what then is Matthew 10 to us? I think it's still fair warning. I think it still calls believers to a decision. And importantly, at its heart and center, it's also still a promise of divine care and comfort in the midst of a life of discipleship that we might choose to opt into. Let's not overlook this part of the conversation that was kind of tucked in the middle. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Honestly, I think that's like the sweetest statement in scripture. In the middle of this full disclosure moment, where Jesus is straight up saying that the way of Christ won't be easy, he also says, I've got you, little bird. And all the little birds can infer, ah, you've got us. Imagine that. You decide to go and live for Jesus, to live a life toward him and to bless the world absolutely. And then he scoops you up and he keeps his hands there, supporting you, guarding you, going the whole way with you. You being dear to him. You bearing his name. You declaring his truth in a hurting world and in return, him declaring your name as one of his own before God in heaven. I don't know how you hear that, but it sounds to me like really good terms. I think we would universally experience peace on earth if everyone entered into that agreement. But signing on is up to you. And afterward, Christ following will be proven by your life. I have high hopes for all of us in that. Those would be some really well-purposed lives. I hope you all go for it. Because you've got this, little birds. Let me end with this. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of the day. Amen, and you are dismissed.